Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez here with my co-host, Brad Binkley. And it is our pleasure to welcome a man I have wanted to talk to since the first time I heard him on the Rebel Capitalist over a year ago. And boy, has he been busy since then. And it's no wonder his cases and clients include some of the most interesting of our time and most recognizable, including Wesley Snipes, Alex Jones, Kyle Rittenhouse, Donald Trump, the Covington kids, and the list goes on. So without further ado, let's welcome the great Robert Barnes. Hey, Mr. Barnes, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, <clears throat> I love I, I love your backstory. Is it true? Am I correct in finding that you were accepted to Yale, went to Yale, and after a couple of years just kind of blew them off because, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, sounded like you thought they were snotty and it was lame. And you went back to Tennessee and continue to experience great success. Yeah, it was a uh, sort of early defining choice. I had been a scholarship student to a religious school, then a scholarship student to an elite private school, then was a scholarship student to Yale. And I had hoped Yale would be more of, I used to quote Jesse Jackson, uh, the, uh, you know, it turned out Yale was supposed to be the best and the brightest. It turned out to be the richest and the whitest. That was, uh, you know, uh, it was not as good. You know, the, I couldn't find a way to uh, otherwise paraphrase, but it ended up very true. It ended up being very much an elite driven institution of people who are really disconnected from ordinary American way of life. Uh, mostly it was New York, LA and flyover country, you know, and the, uh, and that was the mindset. And, and while I was there, they decided they were going to discriminate against poor students. So if you were lower income, you would be less likely to be admitted solely because you were poor. And they were, get, so it's called need-blind admissions prior to that. And they were going to scrap it. And they were going to scrap what's called need-based financial aid. So that it was the case at Yale that if you couldn't afford to uh, get there, they would cover, they would find ways to cover the gap in scholarships, fellowships, so on and so forth. Uh, they were going to get rid of that as well. So basically a school that was already, the, you know, the sons and daughters of the privileged, mostly donations could get you in before it became a criminal controversy. Everybody knew that was the way it went. Uh, legacy admissions. You know, if your grandpa went there, you got I mean, there's a reason why George W. Bush graduated from Yale. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks of him really as Yale quality, according to <laughs> Yale's brand. Uh, but they decided they were going to screw over poor kids. And so me and some other kids got together. We formed a protest group. It became clear that they thought they could just buy us off with uh, rewarding us individually, you know, get into Yale Law School, get this, get that. Wow. And so we, uh, or I decided to send the opposite message because nobody ever rejected Yale. And so everybody who was there considered it such a prestige and an honor. Some of them had, had been working at it since they were five or six years old. Uh, and so I left Yale in protest to get attention to the issue. And the, it had the net effect because Yale and the rest of the Ivy League uh, committed to need blind admissions and need based financial aid right after right when they were thinking about not doing it they've decided to do it because they couldn't afford the negative publicity and because they lied to their donors they get their donors to give money in the name that they're going to help poor kids and then they misdirect the funds uh, so we it was successful in that sense but yeah I left in protest in order to get attention to the policy and the fact of doing so was kind of a decision it was one of those uh, you know Robert Frost you come to a path in the woods and choose the lesser traveled one. And that's what I did. And it sort of set me down the path I have never gone back on. Well, I have, I, and you validated something that I heard John Taylor Gatto say one time, which was that it's the predictor of success that is associated with Ivy League education is actually equally associated with Ivy League admissions. So it's not so much that getting the degree, it's that they know how to pick them. And I have to say, I actually benefited greatly from that need-based thing because I transferred from community college to Harvard as the poor kid. It was a very traumatic experience. Like there was no safety net. They put me in with like the graduate students. It was still really traumatic, but <clears throat> my dad was a truck driver. I was, I did not have the kind of courage you had. And I was only there for two years. They gave me a three-year scholarship, but I said, I'm finishing in two years. I got to get out. I just, it was hard to take. But for me, I feel like it is something that I kind of needed that credential as a, as a crutch because I didn't have my head together the way you did, but it is true. And I was telling my son about you in this interview and he said, he dropped out of Yale and he's still like the superstar. He said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you need the Yale thing, then maybe you're not the superstar, you know? So maybe well, it's a yeah, crutch. 
I mean, no question. I mean, when I was there was when a student falsely got into Yale by falsifying his uh, underlying uh, resume and, and even falsifying his, uh, his, his, uh, re- his references, his grades, you name it. And what was inter- most interesting to me was his GPA while he was at Yale was higher than the average Yale GPA. And I was like, this reveals Yale for what it really is. It, it is, it, it's a credential ticket. It's, uh, there's no question that, now the other thing it is, is it's cultural, it, it's relationship building. So there's people I know, you know, John Avalon, buddy of mine at Yale, now a high ranking guy at CNN, uh, was the editor in chief of the Daily Beast. We have a lot of our debates and arguments. Uh, another, a guy who put our protest organization on the map, Dave Lionheart, editor in chief of the Yale Daily News, now one of the top economics reporters at the New York Times. Uh, other, you know, people that know me, uh, high-ranking State Department people, high-ranking, some of them end up in the uh, Trump administration, uh, others ended up judges. So who you know is what it, it, it says, here's your ticket to power. And it also acculturates you into a certain mindset, a certain mentality that I'm here because like one of the reasons why I protested, one of the reasons why Yale was so outraged at that student who got in falsely was because it exposed Yale as just really being a privileged ticket not being something that most of the people there earned. Uh, in fact, when I was, after I put out some of my publications, a bunch of the political groups had me speak on campus when I was a, still a student there. And my argument was, what if 10,000 people equally deserve to get into Yale? What if 100,000? The Doesn't that make the thousand that got admitted just more of a lottery ticket winner than of a meritocratic uh, deserved, uh, deserved status holder? And people didn't like to hear that because part of the mythology of the professional class was that we deserve to have power because we're special, we're smart, we're better than other people. We got schooled at these places. And I rejected that from the very get-go. And I was like, when I was there, I was like, I know plenty of people, truck drivers, plumbers, grocery store clerks, uh, folks I grew up with, folks I mean, I worked for my grandparents' diner uh, from the time I was 10 that I used to, you know, uh, bust tables for and then wait on. It's like many of them have much better understanding of the world than many of the kids here do because their education is real life. And real life is often a much better tutor than uh, the way we teach kids. And so the, uh, and in part that advantaged me, I think, because when I went back home to Tennessee, uh, my professor was called himself the founder of the Redneck Anarchist Club. Uh, now he has TDS, so he can't get over Trump being, you know, who he is. But he's a Quaker, so I, I excuse <laughs> that. But uh, but was a genius guy that I taught me as taught me more than nine out of ten professors at Yale did, um, and educated my two thirds of my ideology and understanding of my ideas was shaped by the books that he curated for me. So the uh, and then a lot of the working class students I got to go to school with. Uh, now there were more there then than there are now. But the and then Yale uh, the, and then went to Wisconsin Law School on fellowship. I was part of a group of students they let in that were more working class background for that reason. It was an African American dean of admissions who wanted truly diverse groups of people. He wanted people diverse based on life experience, not just skin color or religion or anything else. And so it was one of the last great classes of Wisconsin's law school. Uh, people I still know to this day. And so it's, it's who you know and what you know more in terms of ultimate success than it is the credential, though it is much harder for people to succeed in today's world without the credential. I would say a couple of things. Doesn't just, it also screens not only going in, but then it co-ops you going out. So I've read things about Skull and Bones that says you're actually, the thought leaders are not the ones who are chosen for Skull and Bones. It's the people who they know, you know, it's like the Boy Scouts, right? The people they know want to be part of that fraternity and are willing to, I always thought fraternities were weird because they'll beat your ass and they're supposed to be your best friends. Mike, that, is that really the kind of guy you want? That's the screen you want to use for who's in your club. And then on the going out, you're supposed to favor those people. And I, and after my experiences, having experience with Ivy League people, but also my truck driver roots, 
it's the people in the real world who are willing to look at the flaws inherent in the system. Whereas the ones who I actually had a banker friend say to me, you're crazy. This system works. It's fair because I work hard and I'm smart and I'm successful. And once that it's that updike thing, like the, the, my sister calls it the ethical glass ceiling. You cannot get somebody to, to question where, why they're getting their paycheck and uh, and I also noticed a case, I think it's called Duke. It's not about Duke the school. It's like Duke Energy, I think, where they don't allow you. Because I said, well, if that's the case, if Taylor, John Telegato is right, and you can't, uh, it's really just the admissions process that is an indicator of your capabilities. Why can't we just all give IQ tests and skip the school together? Well, Duke Energy, I think it was Energy, said no, because it has a disparate racial impact which I consider to be, I don't even believe that was the policy reason. I think the policy reason was because it would take down that brainwashing co-opting system. Oh, uh, no doubt about it. Because I mean, the, the, the net effect of it, I mean, education has kind of always been acculturation in America since about the late 1800s. As soon as we became the, the whole Dewey system, the industrialization, I mean, there's like, people should think, why do we go to a class and it's it has time periods, you know, eight to eight fifty, nine to nine fifty, ten to ten fifty, because it was designed to be to work around shifts and getting people accustomed to the idea of here's the bell, I go from here to here. Uh, not about learning anything in terms of content or learning anything in terms of how to learn. And so much of education is really acculturation. I was thought I was going to write, you know, I think it was Robert Fulgham wrote that book, Everything I Needed to Learn uh, Needed to Learn in Life. I learned in kindergarten. I was going to write a, a sort of inverse version of that, which is everything, you, almost like Michael Malice style, everything you need to learn about the state you learn in kindergarten. Your parents drop you off with these random authority figures whom you've never met in your life and who tell you what you can do, when you can go to the bathroom, when you can play, when you can talk, who you can talk to, what you can talk about. And if you don't do every single thing this random authority figure tells you to do, first they deprive you of pleasure. You don't get to go out in the playground. You don't get to talk to, with your friends. You don't get to have any fruit punch or cookies. And then they escalate to, to imposing pain. Now, these days, that's mostly sit in the corner, go to detention hall, forms of social isolation. But it used to be uh, include physical punishment when I was a kid. It meant spankings and the rest. So I was like, everything you learn, need to learn about the state, you do learn at four years old when they drop you off at kindergarten. And definitely by the time you're six and you're at first grade, and if you don't trust them, they now tell, label you oppositional defiant. Yes, so you're yes, actually but- labeled mentally ill if you resist these strangers. And that helps you trust the science, you know, trust the scientist priests who want to give you a vaccine, but don't let you read what it's all about. And that, and there are like three big topics. I, 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 we asked our audience what they wanted to hear from you. You've got a lot of fans among our listeners and we, we have up with three topics, free speech, election integrity, and the, what I call the rising vaccine apartheid. So specifically, let's start, if you don't mind, with the free speech question. And this is, a, is something I've noticed across the board, which is, I call it this kind of reverse fascism, backdoor fascism, where, and I see with big tech and with big business now, where they, the government couldn't actually limit your speech the way big tech does. And I, I think it's no coincidence that DARPA created big tech and and their laws and preferences, Section 230 created, I gave the door open to the monopoly in each of the niches. And then they want to take it away just when that door would close, but that they can get away with taking away your First Amendment when uh, the government couldn't. And I actually think that it's they they shouldn't. So if if the grocery store requires that you're allowed to give out political flyers because they are protected by the police, if I understand the I've read some of the cases, then why is it that Twitter with the patents that are they use are protected and other government platforms, maybe the Internet itself? Why isn't it just uh, inherent that they are supposed to consider it a public place and incorporate the first amendment into that you know why can't why don't they have to live up to that standard well i mean really it's a sort of a combination i kind of see it in part as a function of 
uh, you know, Michelle Foucault and Noam Chomsky's explanation that the best forms of censorship are self-censorship, if you can create it. Foucault explaining our prison system, that it's a very sort of modern creation. And the reason why it's been created this way is to reflect broader goals of society. And that in our sort of uh, panopticon prison system is designed to also create self-censorship and self-control. And they've just extended that into the big tech space. Uh, and that the goal is for big tech to impose certain rules and patterns of behavior that get people to self-censor. And it works at a tremendous degree. They try to be selective at who they censor, so it sends a message to everyone else, I better not talk about this. I better not use this word. I better not see uh, or reference this point. Now, from a constitutional perspective, my view has always been that we have established precedent. Going back to Marsh v. Alabama on the federal level, going back to the Pruneyard Doctrine in the state of California, which was to avoid the problem of what happens if the state simply delegates its power to the private sector to get around the First Amendment limits on the state's conduct. Says, oh, we won't uh, limit your speech, but we'll make sure this other private entity, quote unquote, limits your speech. And the solution in Marsh v. Alabama and the solution in uh, Pruneyard Doctrine goes all the way back to the problem of the company town. What happens when the company towns, the late 1800s, early 1900s, the way they decided they were going to suppress and squelch labor activity is they just own the whole town. And not only did that help them manipulate housing prices and food prices so that they could rise, lift wages, but also lift expenses so that they really weren't lifting wages. Um, but they needed to suppress you know, the United Mine Workers, especially. Uh, you had groups like the Molly Maguires traveling around, expressing themselves in unique ways in the labor context. And so they decided, we'll just own the whole company town. Then you can't petition. Then you have no right to petition for a labor union or any speech. That went up the, a, a case that involved a different set of facts, but that was the background of what the Supreme Court was looking at, said, no, no, no. If you own the company town, if you own the public square, you are obligated by the First Amendment. And that to me was the, the combination, like people's legitimate concern was they didn't want the small author, the small social media brand to be governed by First Amendment restrictions because that would make it economically very difficult for them to manage to sustain. And it would be kind of coerced speech at that level. On the flip side, like, you know, if Alex Jones had to leave up every statement of people hating him and libeling him because, you know, that would be a problem for him. Oh, I see, yeah. So the, the counterbalance to that I always thought was, well, just limit it to who has monopoly power over the public square, because that's the concern. The concern isn't every social media company. It's these companies that are so big, they own 75 to 80 percent of the uh, public square in their space. And in in that context, they should have obligations. And now once they did like the COVID not lockdowns, that is the exclusive public square, which is a function of a government action intentionally or unintentionally, the argument is they are the public square now. We've just digitized it. That's all we've done. We've, and 80% of the real public square every single day is the digital public square. During the lockdown era, it was 95 to 100% of the public square. And so in that context, and, and all of these companies have monopolies. Now, some people think monopoly means 100%. It doesn't. Uh, under the antitrust law, it means about 75%. Uh, YouTube has over 90% of the relevant market share. Google has over 90% of the relevant market share. Twitter has over 90% of the relevant market share. So does Facebook. You know, MySpace is like 2%. I mean, it's, it's competitors are tiny. Uh, so that was problem one. But problem two is what you point out, which is the idea that these are private companies. The, like, this is my argument with libertarians in general. I'm like, there are no true private. First of all, there, the idea of a, there's no such thing as a private company because by definition, it's public. Because what it is, is I as an individual, a bunch of individuals, we don't want to be held responsible for a bunch of bad stuff we might do. So we get together and we get a special charter from the state that says limited liability corporation or special purpose corporation or whatever name. And, that, you know, Nader has a lot of good criticism of this when we go back. There's good documentaries on how corporations are designed to be psychopaths when you understand their, the psychology of the structure of the organization. So to me, off the, right out of the gate, I don't have a, a true private enterprise. True free enterprise is I can be held individually responsible for anything I do if I'm a stockholder in it, if for anything my business does if I'm a stockholder in it. So if I, my view is if you have special immunity from suit simply because you have formed in a corporation, then you, have, you, you don't have the same free speech rights that individuals have. 
um, and you have certain obligations to protect free speech that other that individuals wouldn't. But putting that aside, in the in the big tech context, this was created by taxpayer money. It was it's been subsidized all the way through. It's been uh, immunized with patent protection, with trademarks, with copyrights that have been enforced under international law, sometimes at the point of a gun. And it uses a massive infrastructure that go that trespasses onto people's property in the form of cable wiring, in the form of other uh, airwave access, which is publicly owned. So the idea that the Internet and big tech is some sort of purely private entity is a fantasy. It, 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 it uh, only exists because of massive levels of public infrastructure, public subsidies, and public protection. So then why shouldn't we use that to include free speech protection for the people who use it? And I would argue also that it's been the actual actors who are dominating their niches are have been curated by the Department of Defense through like MIT contests and research and stuff. You can actually trace back the specific people who are playing. And I would also say behind the scenes, they're cooperating in the surveillance and censorship functions with the government, if you could pull back the curtain on that. So it's even worse. And I have almost no doubt that if you dug into the investors of every major big tech company, you will find CIA front companies seeding a lot of the original cash and still having a major role. Yes, in QTEL. So what do we do? What, What can we expect from this? How do we beat it? Well, the problem is the courts decided that Congress passing Section 230 meant they were supposed to never let big tech ever be sued again. And the, because of that, the courts are mostly closed. And I've told people, you know, take whatever shots you can, but for the most part, that's a long shot. And that it has to be legislative reform. So that means ultimately Section 230 is probably going to have to be changed by Congress because even though, you know, governors in Texas and Florida are trying to take action, a court's probably going to rule it's preempted by Section 230. And it's probably not going to allow the like what people don't know is Section 230, which is the immunity statute for big tech, has been interpreted to mean you cannot even pass criminal laws against big tech. You can't even enforce your own state's criminal laws against them. So that's how broad it is. Basically, they've said they're beyond the reach of any government except the federal government. And the federal government has said they're beyond our reach under Section 230. So now. Justice Thomas wants to revise that. So I've encouraged people to take it up and maybe the Supreme Court will revisit it. But I think Amy Coney Barrett is going to be a bad vote on this issue. She's a pro-monopolist kind of personality if you look at her political and legal history. And so I think our only hope is getting change in Congress. And ultimately, it's going to be changing the presidency because uh, Biden, we're not going to get veto proof uh, votes to overturn it. Now, the other area where suits are being successful is to go after them monetarily on antitrust grounds where they've done other violations of consumer rights, competitors' rights, and the like. So there are, I follow this, there's antitrust lawsuits being filed every single month somewhere in the country against Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter. Google owns YouTube these days. Uh, Facebook owns Instagram. So it's really the big three, Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Uh, They're facing class action lawsuits everywhere because they lied to competitors. They lied to advertisers. They lied to users. They stole users. They just got hit with a $650 million settlement fine in just the state of Illinois for violating people's privacy rights for illicitly tagging people. So the, uh, it's like where someone put someone's face and they would tag their name without them consenting. That's a violation of Illinois state law said that's 650 million bucks they got to pay out of the pocket. So that kind of money can be accumulated, you know, and that's just one case. So I'm hoping that these, the most successful way to tame big tech will come in developing more and more winning in the court of public opinion so that state court juries and judges are willing to whack them in these other cases that could financially cost them more than the free speech violations they've done. I guess it has to be in the court of public opinion because I wouldn't have a lot of hope for the politicization of the judiciary as well as Congress. I mean, you you really have to make it so they have no choice. I think Correct. they can't get away with it. Well, let's I, I actually seen the same pattern with the vaccine vaccine stuff in that. So now we had this COVID thing. 
Binkley has done a lot of work on bringing us the World Economic Forum stuff, the Great Reset stuff, and he actually looks at the different companies that are all plugged into the World Economic Forum. And we've seen with COVID policy, they've shaken out kind of uh, most of the mom and pop stuff and really only big businesses left. So then big business, and we see how they coordinate their policy goals and stuff. Big business comes in and says, okay, you can't get on this plane or go into the stadium or whatever without a vaccination. And so I've never been of a mind that the government's going to give mandate vaccinations, especially since it's emergency authorized and not technically approved. So the big business will say, okay, we just do it this way. I'm calling it this vax apartheid rising. And so a listener pointed out that actually because of the African-American community's resistance towards vaccinations, which is actually documented even by the Council of Foreign Relations and stuff, that that, that would actually have a disparate impact if they, if they went through with this kind of vax apartheid. Do you think that we are going to be in a world where people who don't get a vaccination are like not allowed to go anywhere? I mean, what's the, and that is, an, again, this kind of backdoor fascism where if the government can't mandate it, they get their cronies to do it for them. And I think that will be the objective. I've described everything related to COVID as sort of a real life Milgram experiment. So, you know, the old Milgram experiment where just they brought people in and all they did was meet somebody in a white lab coat. They didn't know their name. They didn't know anything else about them. And the person in the white lab coat said, okay, we're doing this interview of this other person in the other room. And if he doesn't get the question right, the answer right, I need you to give him a little bit of this electric shock. And so the and and what he would tell them to do is the more questions they got wrong to to turn up the electric shock and they and the person that was part of the experiment would hear the person in the other room screaming at different levels. You're killing me, so on and so forth. And what the experiment was is how many people just in responding to a guy in a white lab coat, knowing nothing else about him, would shock a random stranger and torture to the degree of torture and death just because the person in the white lab coat told him to do it. And what was frightening is over half the country did. However, half the people that went in that experiment would shock the person to death. And so to me, this has been a real life Milgram experiment. And it goes also back to Foucault, who was talking about why did our mental illness systems change over time? Why did our prison systems change over time? And it was a part about a shifting perspective in the public. And part of it was he's like, why? Like we've created a criminal justice system that we know is going to create a permanent criminal class. Like if we step back and said, you know what, we want to stop crime. So let's send our youngest, most vulnerable criminals into hardcore juvenile facilities where they get to meet and network with other criminals and get to be abused so that their their, uh, sociopathological behavior will be fully developed. It's counterproductive by every logic, and yet we do so. But Foucault's point was no crime, no police. How do you get people to feel comfortable about police cars and the state being present in their neighborhood every single day? How do you get people to feel good about bars on their own windows? How do you feel people, how do you feel, get people to feel good about the cops running into the scene or the military occupying some part of a city? You get them more scared of something else. And here, what's amazing is that the state has used war, the state has used crime, the state has used foreign enemies, uh, terrorism. All of these things was never success, successful to the degree that a virus has turned out to be. Because like we've, we never have suspended our constitution to the scope we have in the last year. Never. We didn't do it during this level during the Civil War. We didn't do it during the Revolutionary War. We didn't do it during the War of 1812. We didn't do it during World War I or World War II. We had little bits of it. But basically what happened to the Japanese and Korematsu is what's happened to almost the entire country during this detention. And it's just for a flu-like virus. So as soon as it started, I, was, I, I realized people that the government, that uh, every government lover, every state supporter is going to keep utilizing this forever. They'll just find new scary diseases because now it's, it's a biosecurity state. And early on, I told people the major patron of this was clearly Bill Gates. So that if you wanted to roadmap out what was going to happen, just look at what Bill Gates believes in. Look at what Bill Gates's companies are affiliated with. Look at what enterprises Bill Gates are. And this script has read exactly like a Bill Gates script. And a Bill Gates script would be, let's use these viruses to create a world conformity behind the idea that you don't even own your own body. That the state can put in 
anything they want into your own body whenever they say so. Even when, as you know, this is an emergency provision. This has not met regular testing metrics. This is why people like Alex Berenson has been saying there's huge problems here. Bobby Kennedy Jr. has been saying there's huge problems here. And of course, no surprise. That's why they're now censoring and libeling. Uh, I call it the censor and shame campaign. You censor and then you shame or you now or you can shame them first and then censor with Bobby Kennedy. They chose the censor first, then use the fact of censorship to shame him so that people don't look into what he's talking about. And so to me, it violates the Nuremberg Code. The whole point after uh, was the Nuremberg Code was informed consent in all democracies is a human right that the state cannot change that unless you uh, choose to have this invasive medicine and you have a sufficient information to make that choice an informed choice, they can't compel it and can't coerce it outside of extraordinary circumstances. So uh, they could make it contingent. The, they could say, you know, if it was something where they show an extremely high risk that you're carrying the disease and an extremely safe mechanism of a vaccine preventing that disease, they could say, we won't let you go around other people in certain settings outside of that circumstance. The reality is that's extremely rare. You know, outside of limited smallpox circumstances and some others, no vaccine has met the standard of that level of safety, nor has any virus posed that level of threat that we could justify this. Um, and yet that's, that's the world. They, they want to create a biosecurity state where the state has the right to invade your body with anything they want. And if they can control your body, they control you. Control your body and control your speech. The state owns you uh, functionally. But can airlines do it instead? Ah, well, that would be the first step. The first step will be use the big tech model in the speech yes. context and replicate it and have the employer do it, have the school do it, have the uh, local private business do it. Uh, all of those places. That's why I think they've been slow to adapt immunity provisions for businesses related to COVID. Now, once they adopt those limits, once they say no business can be sued for anything related to COVID, then the business no longer has any, uh, all the business cares about is maximum employees, maximum customers, doesn't worry about being sued because they would be accused of spreading COVID. Um, and we're starting to, but that's why that, that was slowed down. They wanted to, they wanted that bill legislation to not go through so that all the, everybody was terrified so that their only protection. And then they did things like the, there's a, a discrimination law on the books that says you cannot discriminate on an airline for someone's medical condition or any other disability. However, the courts have interpreted the law to have no remedy at all. You can't sue for it. And that's why airlines were the first to announce these invade, even though airlines made the least sense. Airlines fil air, air filter system actually screens out almost all COVID, maybe all COVID. Notably, even before mask mandates, there was no big uh, spread super spreader events on airlines. And they looked, they tried to tie it, they couldn't. So, the, uh, so for to be wearing a mask on an airline makes even less sense than another context due to its extraordinary air filtration system. But the only reason why they were able to get away with it and against disabled people. So if you're an autistic kid, you have to wear it. If, if you have a horrible health condition that makes your life in danger by wearing it, you have to wear it or you cannot fly. And you can't sue because the courts decided that that law was an empty law. And not surprisingly, the only person who could enforce it was the Secretary of Transportation. That was Mitch McConnell's wife. And she did nothing about it. Uh, because unfortunately that was a weakness of the Trump administration with some of their cabinet employees. So yes, they are definitely starting out first by subdelegating it. That's why I brought suits wherever I can on behalf of the most egregious examples of the mask uh, in the mask context of, the, of discriminating against disabled people. There's a, a same thing. It's going to happen in the vaccine context because these are not safe and effective vaccines by traditional metrics. In other words, they're considered safe and effective for emergency purposes. But as you note, that doesn't meet the regular standards for safety and effectiveness. And Bobby Kennedy's and other points is we need more information before people are, uh, can make an informed consent choice about whether they want the vaccine. People want it. God bless it. Take them. That, that's up to them. But I believe in informed consent, not coerced consent, and not no consent, which is where a lot of private enterprise is going to be doing at the behest and on the behalf of the state. Well, let's hope then, I guess the hope is that people will take 
specific cases and just slow it down, raise awareness. There is some still hope that things aren't completely controlled from the top. But you mentioned Mitch McConnell, and it makes me think that there's more control at the top, more coordination at the top than a lot of people think, especially since Binkley and I talk a lot every week to Garland Favrito, who is an election integrity activist in Georgia. We've known him for many years. We used to be on the radio in Atlanta, and we developed a relationship with him there. And he is right now that his organization is suing to see the mail-in ballots that they have numerous affidavits that the ballots were not folded. They're on the wrong paper stock and they were filled out by toner, not pen or pencil. So they, and that's enough to actually change the outcome in Georgia. So we were waiting eagerly on January 6th to listen to Kelly Laffler said, the Senator said she was going to fight the good fight and Arizona was starting to, you know, slow down the wheels. We expected it to be like a three-day process. All of a sudden, some bizarrely counterproductive protesters interfered with that process that we were all waiting on. And Mitch McConnell, so, and they, the militiamen who showed up without their guns for the insurrection got back on the buses by sunset and Mitch, they were outlasted by like an octogenarian. Mitch McConnell crawls back into his driver's seat and says, well, obviously this process is over and certifies, which was, I thought the last procedural hope was that day. And, and obviously Mitch McConnell didn't care about that. And I just wonder from your perspective, if that, if, if they're like Trump's team did everything they really could to examine election irregularities in November, if there's any hope or purpose to Garland continuing to fight his fight and, and what that means for the future of election integrity. Uh, Well, I mean, I think the, the good news is it woke up a lot of people who had been kind of asleep at the wheel about the election problems, structural problems that we face. In the way that, to some degree, the the on the it woke Democrats up in 2000 and 2004, when they lost close elections, they woke up to questions about electronic machines in 04. They woke up to questions about the sort of very antiquated system states like Florida utilized, uh, where you could even have something like a butterfly ballot, and the and Democrats became self-educated and then became very informed and then became very active. And then we wage legal warfare over the next 10 years, but especially in 2020, to get the rules that they wanted. So much so that Time Magazine famously bragged about it in, quote unquote, fortifying the election. The force, uh, the, I was surprised that Trump's legal team was not prepped or prepared for what took place. Uh, when I was called in afterwards, we got close to a manageable strategy. But the other people involved were on their own paths. You had what I would call the corrupt insiders who wanted nothing to be discussed because it would embarrass high-profile Republicans. People don't know that Dominion is mostly a Republican-oriented company. It's Republican legislators that put Dominion into most of these states, Republican secretaries of state, Republican governors, et cetera. It's not a coincidence that they're bigger in Georgia and Arizona than they are in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Um, And so the, uh, but you know, the, so, uh, but people started going down a lot of those paths where either they didn't want certain investigation or they were obsessed with paths that were not going to go anywhere. And that led to the underlying, the great opportunity to have a big debate about how we do elections was lost because it got lost in the mix of whether you were for or against Trump. And it got lost in the midst of corrupt insiders wanting everything covered up and some crazy outsiders uh, wanting to go places that did not make sense. That ultimately made kind of a self mockery that, you know, the, there was no reason the, for them to steal an election by trying to rig machines when it was far easier to send in just to, to stuff the ballots, the old fashioned way. And they, because that's more reliable and less traceable. Machines leave a lot of uh, proof in different places. Just as an example, you'll have a Dominion machine in one place, but a different machine in another place. you got like a half dozen machines, companies manufactured in different states. And in some states, you have no machines at all. So why take the gamble in a way that any any Joe Schmo on the Internet could figure out? Instead, just just outsource the fraud. Say we're going to change the rules so that if anybody sends in, so we're going to flood the system with ballots. 
And it's like dropping cash, like raining cash on Main Street. <laughs> Helicopter money. Absolutely, which is, we're also doing that now, but that's <laughs> another know, story. The, uh, and then just flooding this, and then seeing who's willing to cheat. And that's why you get these oddities. So even in Tennessee, you'll get one county that has this crazy spike in turnout and another county within 30 miles that's demographically identical that had no spike in turnout. Well, the reason is simple. Somebody in one county comes from a county that uh, you know, was willing to cheat at the local nursing home or the local facility or the local apartment complex. And in the other county, they weren't. Because the genius of outsourcing fraud is it's very hard to prove. There's no concentrated source of conspiratorial individuals. That's why the whole Sidney Powell story never made sense. I was like, they weren't going to do it that way. The much better way to commit election fraud is you simply give people the means and give people the motive, and then it's untrackable and untraceable. You simply say, by the way, we're going to unlock all the bank, uh, bank vaults for two weeks in all <laughs> of these cities, counties, and states. We're going to unlock the front door. There aren't going to be any guards or security people, and our own people will do the investigation afterwards. <laughs> Sounds so, like the capital Exactly. <laughs> Correct. And it, you know a certain percentage we're going to walk in that door and right. steal from the safe, but they're not going to happen everywhere. And that the proof of it is when you see these crazy patterns that don't make sense. I mean, between neighboring counties in the Dakotas, between neighboring counties in uh, California, between neighboring counties in Tennessee, anywhere, in, even in Georgia. I mean, I, when I first was hired by Trump to go down to Georgia, I looked at the map and I was like, this map makes zero sense. I mean, there's counties next to each other in North Georgia. One voted more for Biden and one voted more for Trump when they're both identically demographically. That makes, right. and I knew these places politically. I knew their history. So, uh, so I think, you know, that's how they stole it. Everybody knows it. It's just the Republicans yeah. have different degrees of willingness to publicly state it. But that's why you're seeing massive uh, legislative reform in the legislators. And that's why Democrats are trying to rush through H.R. 1 in the House and, and Congress. The Democrats don't want the state legislators to be onto the game and to fix it. And <laughs> state legislators are onto the game and they are fixing about 75% of it. So I think enough of a storm was raised by Trump to highlight this problem with enough of the court of public opinion that the state legislatures are going to try to fix the issue. The biggest hurdle will be whether Congress passes its law and then it's all going to go to the courts again. And we'll see if the courts are willing to step up or whether they go and run and hide. Well, you seem to have your finger on the pulse of what what's coming next. And Binkley pointed this out. I don't what were you what did you hear Robert say, Binkley, that um, made you realize that he sees things coming a mile away? Oh, I saw or I heard you talking about political betting, which made me think of the stock market. Uh, I, I'm not I don't know the stock market well at all. But I do know that companies like Facebook and Twitter, that when they go down a whole lot and people say they're gone and they're done, I say, no, they're not. They need it for data collection. It's a, it's a CIA dossier, basically, to collect info. And then I heard you talk about political betting, and I know predictit.org. I was just interested in what your approach is to political betting. So I've been doing it ever since I was a kid. So the, it, it's really uh, – well, my general view is if you're good at analyzing anything, you should be good at forecasting it. Uh, at being above average. Now, that doesn't mean a guarantee or a certainty. It, it's a probability with different assumptions built in. But I, the, uh, what I do well is spot patterns, and I spot patterns that are predictive patterns in particular. And so I do this in all of my trial work. I do this in all of my sports betting work. I do it all of my political betting work. And so because of it, once you get into sort of a mindset mentality of people, like with this election, I went back and forth at different times. Early on, thought Trump was a lock then thought Trump was a big underdog, then thought Trump was back in the game and ultimately made money uh, with my recommended bets because I had to diversify those bets. I had to bet. So, and that's what made this election crazy. Never seen anything like it. I shouldn't have won all of my house bets and Senate bets and state presidential level bets and Trump not won the election. That was a crazy combination because, you know, I won the 
Ohio margin of victory, the Iowa margin of victory, the North Carolina margin of victory, the Texas margin of victory, uh, the Florida margin of victory. And these were all big underdog odds. They were three to one, four to one, five to one, that Trump would win by more than two in Florida, more than five in Texas, uh, that he would still uh, win in North Carolina, that he would win by more than four in Ohio, that he would win by more than four in Iowa. Uh, And so, and yet, I mean, uh, and yet at the same time, Trump somehow lost the presidential election. Well, I won almost every House bet I made, won almost every Senate bet I made. So, uh, but it's really, it's understanding how voters think, how the broader public thinks, and being able to predict how they will act and react to certain uh, circumstances as a campaign rolls out. And this camp, and, and that's, and there's always unknown variables, like the big unknown variables with this election was you've never had a populist outsider win in the first place, the American presidency. You've had quasi-populist, but nobody that's a pure outsider. I mean, even Andrew Jackson and Eisenhower were generals. Uh, Trump was the first guy never to hold any public office of any kind and win the presidency. So you have him running for re-election. And two, we have a degree of corrupt establishment media coming against one guy that we've only had really once in our history, which was William Jennings Bryan in 1896. So those were, and it turned out they could steal just enough. They could rig things just enough to put uh, the, uh, to, to get the outcome they wanted to fortify the election in the words of time. Um, but the, uh, uh, there's another F word that might be a more appropriate, but uh, not necessarily appropriate for general audience. <laughs> uh, but the, but I think that, but that it's basically being a, and knowing the electorate, it's knowing the differences between Norwegian and Swedish and Yankee and, uh, knowing voters by ancestry, knowing voters by their that uh, their life experience shapes how they shape how they filter the world, and then knowing what sources of information they trust to know what policies they believe in, to know which politicians they will empower, and it's uh, all of that, and that so it requires a broad knowledge of economics, culture, politics, history, ancestry, and the rest. People like Kevin Phillips used to be a master of, but once you can monetize it, that makes it even more fun. Yeah, yeah. Is there a platform you use specifically? Uh, it depends. I used to travel overseas because of COVID. I couldn't, uh, so I used to go over to the betting to this, uh, the books in Ireland and London because those are the biggest betting markets in the world. The best betting market is Betfair, but you have to not be a U.S. citizen in order to get access to it. So there are other people who followed my bets who use Betfair and made tons of money throughout the election cycle, all the way going back to the primaries. But the uh, but I would usually place bets in the books themselves in Ireland, in London, in Dublin, but I was not allowed to this year. So this year I was only on predicted. Yeah. So the, uh, so predict it was my main place. Now the advantage of predict, the disadvantage is you pay a big fee on the, uh, you pay 10% of your profits back to them. And the other disadvantage is that there's limitations on how much you can bet on an individual market. Yeah. The upside is the markets are, they have hundreds of betting markets to bet on. So it allows you to diversify your bets. So it sounds like you actually look at fundamentals. And when I look at the stock market, I used to think about fundamentals, but now I'm like, okay, it's just money printing until collapse. Like that's it. There's no fundamentals or policy changes, agendas from the top, how propaganda influences things. So you're the, the highlights that you put out about how you assess what's coming it, for me, that would overweight, uh, actual like people power and underweight the power of basically the the hierarchy the the you know the world who internationally and domestically the power structure and how they control i would say the media is more important than how they control actual politicians but how powerful strong and coordinated do you think they are? We see the World Economic Forum, we see Bill Gates, we see them plotting things and then getting what they want, yet you seem to not be demoralized as we are. <laughs> well, I think it's twofold. The way I would look at it is in a world where they are, the, the, uh, they are truly the wizards behind the scenes, they are truly the, uh, the emperors of information, knowledge, and action, we, Donald Trump is never president. And he's definitely and he's never close to getting reelected to president, even even if they needed someone to pull the pendulum back and swing further, you know, scare people away from what happens if you get your guy in. Now we we've taught you this lesson. There's a chance of that. I think they are not they don't have that degree of sophistication Okay, because the other the other the sign of uh, Trump winning or what it said broader 
was that the system's ability to control information was not what they thought it was, number one. And number two, in particular, it was uh, it was that the system is now run by people that are not just corrupt, but they're no longer as competent as the last generation was. Uh, yeah, it was I wouldn't confuse any of the guys in there now with Hoover or with the Dulles brothers uh, or with Kissinger or anybody like that. That was a sophisticated group of people who knew how to manipulate information to get the outcome they wanted, even when it didn't appear to be the outcome they wanted. Uh, now, these are the people that go into Libya and really think they're going to have this beautiful island of prosperity and success. Uh, that Same with Iraq, same with Afghanistan, same with the rest. They truly don't know how to interpret the world. And I saw it when I was a freshman at Yale. These were the future people that were going to run the world. And it was like, these people are not that bright. These people get basic stuff wrong. Hmm. They don't understand basic things. And then you add to that the new millennial generation that grew up in safe space cultures and play dates from the time they were four. And you have people who will legitimately get angry at a democratic convention because people are talking too loud and they're, they're sensory. They're, they're getting sensory <laughs> overload. I mean, th- can you imagine in the daily convention of 1968, somebody People standing needed up a, a coloring book room <laughs> exactly i mean no, i mean the daily would have sent two levels of uh, police out there to beat them up so that's why i say it's a different system i mean the kennedys uh joe john like particularly the, the patrons of the kennedys there was a guy who knew how to politically maneuver maneuver um this generation of democrats really does not know how to maneuver uh they don't know that you know going after bobby kennedy jr is a mistake for example in the covid context I get they want to suppress and censor the information. They're just going to highlight it for people who had been ignoring it, for people who are like, oh, you know, Alex Jones, whatever. I don't listen to those people on the right. When they hear, oh, all of a sudden I can't listen to Bobby Kennedy Jr. <laughs> on the issue. So they're, they're, they're radicalizing more people than they're normalizing. And I think and it's a sign the system is fundamentally weak. Doesn't mean it doesn't have any strong points. It's just nowhere near Put it this way, it's, it's, I agree with Michael Mouse, why he says he's in a white pill mindset. He goes, a, an empire that's succeeding doesn't have Joe Biden as president and doesn't have a capital on lockdown. And when you have both of those, you're sending the message to the country that you're scared of them and you don't understand them, not that you're safely and popularly in control. Okay, so if we're going to talk white pill, the answer is, I think, uh, information. So in following you, I discovered the locals platform that you're on and I had never heard of it before you talked about it. So I think this would be a nice way to wrap if you can tell us about that and maybe other stuff that how people can follow, because I'm sure that you're going to be all the rage among our listeners, the ones who I didn't know know you're ready. So give it give it to us. Yeah, well, basically, we need exit ramps from the big tech platforms. And Dave Rubin helped create Locals several years ago uh, when I was talking to him about it because we were in the same space looking for solutions because the, the, the genius of the possibility of the internet was it could dramatically expand the number of people who get to author the world. And it's not just, it dramatically, it exploded the library of available information, but also the curators of that available information. So all of a sudden the Mike Cernoviches of the world can become self-made influencers in ways that could not have happened 40 years ago outside of writing a small newsletter to a thousand people across the country, right? You know, that kind of thing. The, and so it radicalized and revolutionized the world, but in ways that the system finds scary because the advantage of its surveillance was being countermanded by the revolutionary instinct of, of little D democracy, democratizing information for the populace and the people. I saw this in the tax protest context, defending a lot of people accused of being tax protesters who became awakened to questions about the tax law because of the Internet. And a lot of what they've experimented with in suppressing Internet information these days, they started doing to people in that movement. And so so I was ahead of the curve on all of it, but knew we needed a free place that was independent of the big tech monopolist, that decentralized ownership of information, that democratized access to creators, curators, and and content that could be affordable and accessible with honest, transparent pricing 
rather than unconsensual commodification of your private information and without the algorithmic and emotional manipulation that big tech engages in on top of its censorship and suppression of information. And so I, we created with Viva Fry, who I do a show with, uh, locals created the technology and we created the page on using their technology. And it's vivabarnslaw.locals.com. And the reason why we created it, and we put tons of exclusive content just for subscribers. For those people who don't want to be subscribers or just want to check in now and then, they can just be members for free. And there's a lot of information provided for them as well. Also wanted like an old community. Look at communities that changed the world. Had institutions like the Salon of Enlightenment Europe, like the Tavern of Colonial America that became a central place where people could share information, share ideas, get connected to one another, communicate those ideas, and build a passionate, informed uh, base of people who can go out and change the world, starting in their local communities. And thus, locals is well-titled for that purpose, meant to be and serve that purpose on a broader scale. So in the, <clears throat> we provide all the exclusive content, includes like a hush-hush series that gets into things like what really happened on January 6th, what role QAnon may have played in it that was, uh, or Q in particular may have played in it, what role certain other people, you know, how a disinformation campaign might work, to things like the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the assassination of John Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, what really happened in Oklahoma City, and how that might parallel a certain attorney general that's trying to come to power right now. So provide all that information uh, on sort of the uh, on the QT, if you will, for uh, subscribers of the locals audience to give them that inside information that we, all, we couldn't even publish anywhere else because it would be censored or suppressed, uh, but also to make it available to those people that are helping provide a financial base for this to be sustainable over time for content creators and curators and the locals tech board uh, originators. I just joined your locals page. It was very affordable. I think it was only five bucks, but. I didn't realize that now I'm going to find the answer to the one question that I really want to know about you, which is how far down the rabbit hole do you go? So I will leave that as a tease to anybody who wants to check you out on Locals. And it's very intriguing because I really care about meeting up with actual real people and the local community elements of that is for me as white pill as you can get, because that's really what we need. We're still people. I don't want to get sucked into a tube forever. I'm probably not going to get a vaccination. So I am going to have to stick to my town and that's great. So I absolutely loved listening to you. Your um, Twitter is at Barnes underscore law. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, as long as I exist there, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Join the club. Oh, I have to say one more thing to you. I We were taken down from WordPress, completely destroyed in 2018 in August. It was around the Alex Jones thing. And I got an email that said, you have a picture up of someone who was killed in a school shooting. And, and I just said, like, the BBC misidentified this person who was killed in Connecticut as being killed in Pakistan. I had two pictures like that. And they said, this is taken down, but, uh, and it had the father of that boy, his address, everything. He wants you to take it down, but you have fair use for this. This is the law that that's based on. These are cases we've won defending users like you. We're not telling you to take it down, but he's just asking. So I took it down out of etiquette. Then they sent me another one. They said this other picture too. And I showed my husband, he was like, don't take it down. You have every, every right to leave it up there. Look, they're telling you. And, you know, they completely wiped all, I had a business plan with them. They wiped all of my content. I never really got back on my feet after that. It was seven years of work. And I just wondered when you said, like Jack Dorsey said, hey, I'm free speech land, invest. You know, you have like 100,000 tweets or so. I mean, invest here. And I just wondered, like, it, it, did, did I have a case there? Could I have actually gotten anywhere with that? I mean, it was such a trap. But for what the courts did in Section 230, the traditional answer would have been yes, because um, all these big tech companies committed, in my view, committed consumer fraud. They were unjustly enriched under old equitable principles because they're they're. What's unique about all of them is nobody pays WordPress for what WordPress itself creates in terms of content. Nobody pays Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Google, any of them for what they themselves present. Uh, they're almost like uh, Joe Rogan in the sense that nobody listens to Joe Rogan to actually listen to Joe Rogan. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, right. So the same dynamic. Um, 
And so what they, the way they, their whole monetization was based on creators using their platforms to create value for these companies. These companies got rich off that value, then turned around and screwed the very people that helped create that content and create that value. So under traditional consumer fraud principles, breach of contract principles, unjust enrichment principles, equity contract and statutory law, it was a violation. Plus, in my view, the First Amendment under Marsh v. Alabama, because almost all these entities are monopolists. Uh, but they took Section 230 and said, can't sue anywhere, anyplace, anytime for any reason. And so that's why the we've got to reform Section 230 while continuing to hammer the court of public opinion, because sooner or later, that's what can help reform it on the legislative level. But it might allow for the occasional breakthrough at the judicial level. Uh, if enough people hear bad, bad, bad Section 230, then occasionally the politicians will actually take action. Well, you've given me new hope to stay engaged. I really appreciate it. I will definitely find you and Viva at uh, Locals. So thank you very much, the great Robert Barnes. Glad to be here.